It is, of course, uh, a tremendous joy and privilege to be able to uh, speak with you this morning about uh, the covenant of redemption and the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation. Last night, what we talked about is we talked about the uh, eternal covenant among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to appoint the Son as the covenant mediator as well as the guarantor, or another word for guarantor is surety, somebody who undertakes all of the legal responsibilities for the covenant. And so uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit appointed the Son to that uh, vital role for our redemption. But it was also about uh, the salvation and the plan to uh, bring about the salvation of the bride of Christ, uh, those who have been chosen in Christ uh, before the foundation of the world. Now, that, we could say, is the big picture, or that is uh, the overall plan. But what we want to do this morning is we want to delve into the specifics, and in particular, we want to look at the doctrine of imputation, the doctrine of imputation. But first, we want to understand, what do we mean by the doctrine of imputation? Uh, it's, it sounds maybe a, a little bit heady. But at the end of the day, I want to assure you that it is not and that it is it is grounded and it is rooted not only in the person and work of Christ, but it's also eminently practical, eminently practical. Uh, and so let me let me at least briefly explain those two points before we uh, get into the rest of the material that we have uh, for the lecture in that uh, when we talk about imputation, what we mean by that is when somebody credits something to your account. If we were to be uh, looking at the ledger and say you had two columns, you had the, the debit column, the things that you owe uh, because of expenses that you have received or that you have made, and then on the other side you have the credits column, uh, so that you can look and to see what you've received, what has been credited to your account. Maybe you've looked online, for example, when you're doing some online banking and you're looking for a specific transaction. You always see that uh, there seem to be far more uh, debits in that side of the column than there are credits. You know, sometimes, like the other day, I was looking to see had a deposit been made, and so I clicked one of the tabs just to look at all of the credits. And it was so sad and pathetic that there were so few credits, you know, but uh, I found the credit that I was looking for. So when we talk about imputation, we're talking about credits to our account. Some of the other words that we might say uh, in that vein and that you see uh, uh, used in the scriptures are accredited or credited or imputed or reckoned. If something is reckoned to your account, accredited to your account, credited or imputed, that's what we want to understand. Something that is given to your credit to your account. Now, when we talk about imputation, and especially as it relates to the doctrine of salvation, when we, we want to use that phrase in terms of the accredited or the imputed righteousness of Christ the accredited righteousness of Christ, which means that that as covenant surety, Jesus comes and he performs the work that is necessary to bring about our salvation, and that when we trust in Jesus to believe in him and we receive the gift of faith by God's grace and we trust in who he is, what he has done for us on our behalf, God accredits or imputes his righteousness to our account. If we have our ledger and we know that our ledger is red with debt, then what Christ does is through the imputed righteousness of Christ, he suffers the penalty that is due to us for all of that red in our ledger. But he does more than that. He does more than that. He not only removes the debt that we have in our ledger, but then he positively fills the credit side of our ledger with his obedience 
And so the way we often hear this is that we receive through imputation the satisfaction and obedience or the suffering and obedience of Christ, his penalty bearing for us and his law keeping for us. We can illustrate it with a simple question when I say this, when I say, if I ask you, why did Christ die for you? I suspect most of us can answer that question very quickly and readily and rightly when we say, well, he died for me because he bore the penalty for me. He paid the price that I owed because of my sin. And we would say, absolutely, praise God. But then there's a follow-up question to that that people don't often uh, get that answer and they really have to think about it. Okay, we understand why Christ died for us, but why did he live for us? Why did he live for you? And the, one, of the, one of the historic answers throughout church history to that question has been, well, he lived because he had to qualify himself to be our high priest. And there's, there's a degree of truth to that. But it's not the whole truth. And that he lived for you to fulfill the law for you. And that gets accredited to you, that is imputed to you by faith. So that when God looks upon you, he not only sees that you are completely sinless, but he also sees that you are totally and perfect, perfectly righteous and that you are in complete conformity with every single requirement of the law. That is eminently practical. Again, I don't want to say that the, the end-all, be-all test of doctrine is, is it practical? But I remember I received a question once when I was uh, teaching on this particular doctrine. And most kind professors will tell you that, no, 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 really, it's fine. There are no dumb questions. I'm, I'm going to let you in on a, on a little hint. There are dumb questions. But I try to be kind enough never to say, oh, that was a really dumb question. Okay. But I got one, one day in class a really dumb question because I had just lectured on imputation and the student raises his hand and I was like, yes. And uh, he said, Dr. Fesco, you know, what are the practical implications of the doctrine of imputation? I wanted to say, really? <laughs> are you serious? What are the practical implications of the doctrine of imputation? You mean that our holy God will not condemn you justly to hell? That's not practical enough for you? That you stand in the presence of a righteous and holy God covered in the righteousness of Christ and wearing Christ's perfect robe of obedience instead of your own filthy garments? That's not practical? If that's not practical, I don't know what is. But what we want to do is we want to take that idea of the doctrine of imputation and ask the question, where does it originate? Where does it originate? You know, as, as we're looking at the doctrine of imputation, as I've, I, I've unfolded it for you in these, in these, uh, you know, in this brief explanation, we can say that we're looking at the fruit on the edges of the tree as it hangs beautifully from the branches. But what we want to do is we want to trace that fruit of imputation down the branch, down the trunk into the roots. And where do we find the roots for the doctrine of imputation, but in the covenant of redemption that we talked about last night? And so to that end, what we want to understand, first of all, is we want to understand what Christ does when the father appoints him as covenant surety in the covenant of redemption or his role as covenant guarantor. Secondly, we want to see what his covenant responsibilities are so that in eternity, when the father assigns him the role as covenant surety, we want to understand what was it that Christ voluntarily and willingly volunteered to do. 
And then the third and finally, we want to make those connections to covenant and imputation so that as we behold the fruit, let's trace it all the way back down the tree into the roots. And we can say that it's in the rich soil of the covenant of redemption that we find the roots of the doctrine of imputation. So let's first give thought to the idea of covenant surety. And as I said last night, I think that the most important verse in this whole discussion is Hebrews 7.22, when the author of Hebrews says that in contrast to all of the other covenant servants, whether we're talking about Moses, but especially in this case that we're talking about Aaron the high priest, the author there in Hebrews 7.22 says that Jesus is the guarantor or the surety of a better covenant. This is the most important verse because this is what Greek New Testament scholars call a hapax legomenon. I once said that and somebody said, what do Legos have to do with this? I'm not sure. A hapax legomenon is a fancy Greek term that means it happens. It's a word that happens one time. The only time that you find the word guarantor or surety in all of the Bible is there in Hebrews 7.22. That's why this verse is so important. And within the greater context of the book of Hebrews, as I said, the author explains why Jesus' priesthood is infinitely superior to the Levitical priesthood and why the new covenant is superior to the Mosaic covenant. And that here, within the context of the letter of Hebrews, the recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians, in other words, Jews who had converted to Christianity, who but under the weight and the, the difficulties of persecution were thinking about going back. They were thinking about going back to the ways of Judaism in a way to kind of shed off the the, the, the trials and the difficulties of persecution. And so the author spends all of these different ways as he works through the book of Hebrews uh, explaining why it's a bad idea to go back. And it's not so much to say it's bad to go back. He does say that, but look at how much you have in Christ. And he points this out by saying that Jesus is the covenant guarantor or surety. Now, as I said last night, a surety or a guarantor is somebody who assumes all of the legal responsibilities for a covenantal agreement. In other words, he says, I will not only carry out all of that is which that which is required in the covenant, but in addition to that, I will also pay the penalties if you fail to meet your side of the agreement. If you fail to meet your side of the agreement, I will pay the penalty. And on top of that, I will also ensure that all of the legal responsibilities of the covenant are taken care of. Now, this is where we go to the question, and we're kind of revisiting a little bit for the sake of review, is that when was Christ appointed as surety? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, again referring to the Levitical priests who became priests simply by virtue of their uh, descent from Aaron. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, remember what we said last night as we looked at Psalm 105, verses 8 through 10, and the different ideas and words that the author of the psalm interchangeably swaps out with covenant. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. So that here, a sworn oath is what you say when you make a covenant. And so the fact that the Father makes a sworn oath to Jesus in the covenant of redemption, and it says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, 
It means that Jesus is appointed by the Father to this covenantal role in the covenant of redemption. He is the covenant surety. He is the covenant guarantor. He's the mediator. All right, so this is his appointment as covenant surety. But secondly, we want to ask that question as to, okay, what are his responsibilities? We understand generically in terms of, okay, he's going to fulfill all of the legal obligations as well as obligate himself to suffer the penalties for the covenant. Well, you have to understand that in all of God's covenants, you know, you can see them all throughout the scriptures. There's always two sides. There are always blessings and there are always curses. And in one sense, this is not anything that's necessarily all that unique to the Bible. It's essentially what is common to any type of agreement. You know, if I make an agreement with my son, I want you to clean your room. And if you clean your room, I'll give you a dollar because I'm a high roller. That's the blessing. Financial compensation, 100 cents. But if you don't clean your room, and I'll give you 59 minutes, then there's going to be consequences. And the consequence is, is that you've got to wash my car every week for the next four weeks without any compensation. That's the curse of the covenant. There are consequences and benefits in every agreement. You know, if you're a contractor, uh, you, you get, if you finish early, there's sometimes there are bonuses. If you don't finish early and you don't finish on time and there's a delay, there are liquidated damages. In other words, you have to begin to pay the person for the delays that has contracted you. Well, this is the way God's covenants work. In Adam, it says specifically in Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill all the earth and subdue it. That's the blessing side. But then conversely, the curse side in Genesis 2.16 and 17, you can eat freely from any tree of the garden, but you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the Noahic covenant, believe it or not, there are blessings and curses. This covenant is often presented as one that is complete and sheer promise on God's part. And indeed, that's what it is. For God promised Noah, his family, and the entire creation, I will no longer destroy the earth by water again. And here is my sign in the heavens. Here's the rainbow. But there's a curse side to it. That if you shed the blood of man then your blood shall be shed. Your life will be uh, taken as a, as a consequence of violating the terms of this covenant. In Moses, with the Mosaic covenant, again, you see the blessings and the curses, especially pronounced in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and following, where the people stand between Mounts Gerizim and Ebal, and they say, Okay, if if you do all of the things that are required of you in the covenant, then you'll have long life in the land. You'll have many offspring. You will have verdant fields. You will bring in the harvest. You know, ten of you will chase a thousand of your enemies and the creatures around you will all be in fear of you. But if you disobey, if you disobey then the exact opposite will happen. The sky will harden over like an iron dome and you will not have verdant fields. You will not have many offspring and your enemies will pursue you and the creatures will encroach upon your territory. There were blessings and curses. It's this way because this is the nature of divine revelation, because this is the nature of God. There are no neutral encounters with God. You can't walk into the presence of God and walk away as if saying, mm, that was interesting. You either conform to who God is and are therefore blessed, 
or if you do not conform, then you suffer his judgment. That's why in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's either a blessing to us or it's a curse to us. So when the father appoints Jesus as the covenant guarantor, the surety, it means that Jesus assumes the legal responsibilities both for fulfilling the covenant, bringing about the blessings, as well as taking the responsibilities of the curses that come along with it. And the Apostle Paul is very clear about this in other portions of the New Testament where Jesus assumes the responsibilities for the broken covenant of works. When Adam first sinned in the garden, he wasn't there just alone by himself. He was representing all of us. I've heard people say, well, I don't like that idea. Well, okay, I can get that. Especially as uh, rugged American individualists as we are. I've heard some people say, well, I didn't give God permission to appoint Adam as my representative. Oh, did you now? <laughs> really? <laughs> you don't say. And I've heard, I've heard highly trained uh, theologians saying, it, you know, Adam's representation lacks the authorization principle. And the authorization principle is that we did not authorize Adam as our representative. I say it sounds very democratic and very American. The problem is, is that God is not very American or democratic. He's the king of kings. And he says, Adam is your representative. Note here the underlying problem with that, with that criticism is that in saying, I didn't authorize God to, to make Adam my representative, you're saying one of two things or maybe even both. You're saying, A, God didn't choose wisely enough. I could have chosen better. Or you're saying, I would have done something different than Adam. I mean, all of us would have liked to have said, I would have gotten my chainsaw out. He says, we couldn't eat it, but he didn't say we couldn't chop it down <laughs> and bury it. How arrogant. We would do different, or God didn't choose well enough. But notice the other problem that is entailed with that is that if you reject Adam's representation because you didn't authorize it and you weren't there, then you can't have Christ's representation either because you don't authorize it and you weren't there at Calvary either. And so this is why Paul puts Jesus and Christ up together in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, 1 Corinthians 20 through 28, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through the end of the chapter. But here, more specifically, when he talks about Christ's curse-bearing work, he says in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a, his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus comes under the law in order to redeem us from out from under it. When the father said, who will go? And the son says, I will go. In the covenant of redemption, he was saying, I will go and be born under the law. To what end? Christ redeemed us, writes Paul in Galatians 3.13 and following. Christ redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He's born under the law to bear the curse on our behalf because he's the covenant guarantor. He's the covenant surety. And what we may not realize, and this is where we begin to plumb the depths of Christ's love for us, 
You know, how many of you have ever made a commitment and then after the fact realized, oh, no, I want to take that commitment back? When I was in seminary, I did a really stupid thing. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, so this isn't the only one. But uh, John Gerstner, Dr. John Gerstner, who was uh, R.C. Sproul's mentor, uh, I was alive or he was alive back then. And so that means it was a long time ago. But he had this thing where I was listening to some of his lectures. He says, if you write to me and you're willing to read the works of Jonathan Edwards, I will send you those works for free. It's like, hey, free books. <laughs> sign me up. So I wrote him a letter, say, yep, sign me up. And you had a, a, a year to read them from the day that you received them. So I sent, the, sent off the letter. And then after the letter was in the mailbox, I thought, I wonder what those books look like. So I went over to the library and I pulled them off the shelf and I went, it's like a six point font, double columns in an eight and a half by 11 thing. I was like, oh no, I wonder if I could camp out by the mailbox and get my letter back out. I want to read Edwards, but not this bad. (laughs) The moment that I made that commitment, I (laughs) I realized I want to take it back. When Jesus made his commitment, there were no doubts, no reservation, no hesitation. He knew what he was volunteering to do. And in this particular case, in the curse bearing, it's significant that he was willing to be hung from the tree. Because what the ancient church has said about that is that it is a suspension In that Jesus was suspended upon the cross between heaven and earth. Which is tantamount to saying he was unworthy of both. He was neither fit nor for heaven nor fit for earth. And so he hung suspended between both. Because he was willing to bear the curse for you. Because he's the covenant surety. He bore the curse for you and me. He hung abandoned on the tree. Unfit for heaven and for earth. He hung suspended. But filled with worth. God appointed priest forever. Fulfilled the law for whosoever. Believes in him as surety. And rests in him for purity. You see, Jesus, as surety, fulfills the obligations of the law, both in terms of its curse as well as in terms of its requirements to be obedient to the law. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question chapter 60, it says, but how are you righteous before God? It answers only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, all I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. What are the practical implications? (laughs) I wonder. What a blessing. This is what Jesus does in his work as covenant surety that he was appointed by the Father in the covenant of redemption. Let's look even more closely at this imputation, which brings us to our third and final point, is that the Father appointed the Son to bear both the curse and to fulfill the law as the covenant surety. And we find all of these ideas converging in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Within the the broader context of Isaiah's message, it's the fourth servant song that comes in Isaiah 53. 
In the first servant song in Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4, Yahweh indicates that his servant is the spirit, is the chosen spirit anointed individual who will bring forth justice to the nations. You see, the prophet was saying that there was a coming time when Israel was going to be exiled from the land. They were going to be cast out of God's presence, taken away into captivity. But there was going to come this servant, this spirit anointed servant who would break the iron grip of exile. And so this is in the first servant song in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. In the second servant song in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, he identifies the servant as the one who will make Israel a light to the nations and that he would break the curse of the law, the reason behind Israel's exile. In the third servant song, in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 7, he says that the servant would be rejected and persecuted, but that he would nevertheless still give his obedience to Yahweh. Well, in the fourth and final servant song, which you see from Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. So Isaiah 52, verse 13 to the end of chapter 53 the, the, the prophet explains the nature of the servant's suffering. In verse 7 of chapter 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Think of the depths of Christ's suffering. You know, so often people are under the impression that in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet enters into the temple that day and he's overwhelmed because he sees an appearance of God where it's merely the train of his robe that causes him to call a curse upon himself because he recognizes he's in the presence of our thrice holy God and he himself is a man of unclean lips. Well, note this next to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Scribble in your Bible neatly, of course, because I like to be neat. John chapter 12, verse 41. John chapter 12, verse 41. Because in John chapter 12, verse 41, John is talking about Jesus preaching to the unbelieving crowds. And there, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah And in context, John says these amazing words. He says, Isaiah spoke these words when he saw his glory. And in context, the his means Christ's glory. So the person, if you will, that Isaiah saw that day in the temple was the pre-incarnate Christ. Whose train of the robe overwhelmed the sinful prophet, who I suspect by our own standards was very godly. And yet you compare the pre-incarnate glory with the description of Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Think of Paul's words who... Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But the question we should ask is, why does he suffer? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, the Hebrew term there behind will... It's not just simply desire, but rather as the New Living Translation in its second edition translates it as, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. So what, what you see here is what's going on in Isaiah chapter 53 is that, as I said last night, Isaiah is one of those privileged few who seemingly impossibly, but nevertheless 
is able to eavesdrop on a conversation that occurs in eternity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the Father plans out redemption with the, with the Son and, and the Holy Spirit. And so the prophet says, why is it that the thrice holy pre-incarnate Son would suffer? Why is it that he would be silent before his persecutors, that he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter because it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. This is part of the covenant of redemption. So Yahweh planned to crush the servant to bring about redemption. But this doesn't mean that the son had no say. Remember what Dr. Barrett stressed last night, that the son is fully equal and as he stressed in the previous lecture to this on this morning, where some people will say that the son is eternally in some sense or functionally in some sense always subordinate to the father. We know and we understand how those relationships work. I can't tell you how many times I heard it as a child and now I gleefully say it as a father. Dad, why do I have to do this? Because I said so. I'm your dad. I'm the boss. You have to do what I say. Why? Just because. Well, in this case, we might think, well, it was the father's good plan to crush him. I guess the son didn't have any choice in the matter. We'd say, no. The son had every choice because he's fully equal with the father. But notice especially what the prophet says in verse 12 and take note of the personal pronoun because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors he poured out his soul he was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many Biblical commentators say the repetition of he and his multiple times say that the servant willingly embraced the Father's good plan. This is what happens in the covenant of redemption. Who will go for us? And the son says, I will go. I will go. And so the servant agreed to pour out his soul unto death, to be numbered with the transgressors, to bear the sins of many, to make intercession for the transgressors. This is the language that is ultimately part and parcel to Jesus' statement, as I said last night in Luke twenty-two twenty-nine. I covenant to you a kingdom as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. It's within this very context of Jesus speaking of the covenanted kingdom that he received from the Father. Just two verses before in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Straight from Isaiah. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. But do you notice what lies at the heart? Of the covenant of redemption. As Jesus says in Luke twenty two thirty seven, But he was numbered with the transgressors. And this is what is to be fulfilled in me. My father covenanted to me a kingdom. As I covenant to you a kingdom. Covenant and imputation lie hand in hand. It's not that the doctrine of imputation just kind of leaps off the pages of the New Testament as if it had never existed prior. You know, one of the things that I, I, I've heard this statement before, the Apostle Paul is an amazingly brilliant and insightful theologian. And I want to say, no, I'm not so happy with that statement. It gives us the impression that Paul's just sitting there going, hmm, well, what can I make up next? What he's doing is I say what, where Paul's brilliance lies is not in his creativity, but rather in his ability to take massive portions of the Old Testament and present them in densely packed sentences. 
It's as if what you do is if you've ever played with a jack in the box is you, you turn that crank dun, 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 and as you make it around and it finally hits the spring, the jack in the box pops out. Practically every single sentence in Paul's letters are they're a theological jack in the box. There's so much stuff packed into it. And what lies at the heart of Isaiah chapter 53 is the doctrine of imputation. Isaiah 53 verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, notice here in Isaiah, what he prophesies about has not yet come to pass. And yet Isaiah speaks of it as if it were already accomplished. This goes back to the the certainty of the promises of God that his promises are so sure, even though Christ has yet to come and to be incarnate, Isaiah can speak of them as if they have already happened. You know, you ever have it happen sometimes where your wife or maybe one of your kids or something, you forget something and and you're running late and you say, don't forget to pick up the milk. And you say, it's as good as done, even though you haven't gotten to the store yet, because you're trying to convey the certainty that you will do it. Consider it done. And so here, as Isaiah eavesdrop on this conversation in the covenant of redemption, they're speaking of this, of of Jesus, the perfect, righteous, sinless son of God, being numbered with the transgressors. Notice that phrase, he's numbered. It means that Jesus is not sinful. The son is not sinful. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy, yet he's counted with the sinners. It's as if he himself were sinful. Why? Because in the covenant of redemption, he says, yes, I will be the covenant surety. I will assume all of the legal responsibilities. But notice Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, because he's numbered with the transgressors, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, It's the same exact term that the Apostle Paul uses when he speaks of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And in this case, he's talking about the negative side of imputation of Christ bearing our sin. And even here, the language that the uh, prophet Isaiah uses, that he bore the sins of many, That's language that's taken straight from Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement. Do you remember what happened on that day of days? That the high priest would take the scapegoat and he would place his hands upon the the head of the scapegoat and he would confess Israel's sins over the scapegoat and then they would take that goat And they would lead it into the wilderness so that the scapegoat would carry the sins of the nation away. It's the same language of the scapegoat that the scapegoat would bear the sins of the people, except now it's no longer a goat, but rather it is the son of God who has borne the transgressions of the many. To get more practical, he's borne your transgressions. He's borne your sins. But especially we should note in Isaiah 53, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, which means that even in the face of death, he will nevertheless live. He will see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. That's imputation. It's by Faith in Christ, in the suffering servant, that the Father accredits the Son's obedience to you. This is why Isaiah 
in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, when he thinks about these things, he says, who has believed what he has heard from us? If I can put this in more colloquial language, Isaiah the prophet says, I can't believe this. This is absolutely amazing. It's unbelievable. And yet it's true. The day of atonement produces a scarlet thread that runs throughout the Old Testament that comes to Isaiah chapter 53 and it finds its landing place upon Christ in the New Testament. So that when Paul says in Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The same imputation language that Isaiah uses in Isaiah chapter 53. Romans 4, 5, I think, has to be one of my all-time favorite verses in all of the scriptures. I mean, don't get me wrong. Every single verse is a jewel in and of itself. But it's that one phrase that is so gripping and so powerful. Because it says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. In other words, the verdict that God passes over you when he says you are in full conformity to the law does not match up with who you are. You are ungodly. And yet because of the imputed obedience and satisfaction of Christ, God says, thou art righteous. Thou art just. And this is why Paul says in Romans 4.23 at the end of this chapter, but the words it was counted to him, that is to Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience the many were constituted sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be constituted righteous. That's Isaiah's language. Second Corinthians 5.19 and following in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Luther called the glorious exchange. You take your sin stained, tattered clothing. And God our Father, because he appointed Christ our covenant surety, and because Christ willingly said yes, by the power of the Spirit, by faith alone in Christ alone, he gives you Christ's robe of perfect righteousness. Even though you're ungodly. We stand holy and righteous in God's sight because before the foundations of the world, the triune God covenanted to send the Son to save us. The triune God covenanted to impute our sins to the Son and to credit the Son's righteousness to us. In the words of one famous hymn writer, Lord, thy imputed righteousness, my beauty is, my glorious dress Midst flaming worlds in this arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. This spotless robe, the same appears when ruined nature sinks in years. No age can change its glorious hue. The robe of Christ is ever new. This, beloved in Christ, is our anchor. It is our hope. It's our salvation. 
or in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, God grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if we had never sinned nor been sinners and as if we had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. All we need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, what wonderful manner of love is this, that we should be called your children, and indeed we are. We have been adopted as your sons, all of us, because of the perfect obedience of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you appointed in the covenant of redemption as our heir or as our uh, covenant mediator and surety. We give thanks and praise, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to come, for indeed you consented. You were willing to be crushed for our iniquities. You were willing to be silent as a lamb before its shearers. You were willing to be numbered with us so that we could be numbered with you. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wonders and grace and mercy of God in Christ. How unsearchable are your ways and how unfathomable is your love. We ask and pray, O Lord, that you would cement these truths deep within our hearts and that they would serve as an anchor for our souls when the storms of doubt and of temptation and of trial lash us, seemingly trying to unhinge us from Christ, our rock. Through these truths, we pray, O Lord, that you would impart unto our hearts peace, that you would impart unto us great joy, and that you would give unto us, O Lord, worship for you, our triune God. Fill our hearts with thanksgiving and praise for Jesus Christ, our covenant surety. In Christ's name that we pray, amen.